All right, we are back. Let's talk a little bit about science and where politics meets science, starting with an article about Thermageddon from New Scientist magazine, 23rd October of this year. Article by Hazel Muir has that provocative title, Thermageddon. Subheadline is, Is the real scandal about climate change the fact that its most devastating consequences have been overlooked? The article starts out by taking a look at 23rd century Houston, Tel Aviv, Shanghai, and many other uh, once-bustling cities that are now ghost towns. The article notes that no one lives in Louisiana or Florida anymore, and vast swatches of Africa, China, Brazil, India, and Australia are no-go zones, too. That's because in all these places it gets hot and humid enough to kill anyone who cannot find an air-conditioned shelter. This is the nightmarish scenario outlined in a study published earlier this year. If we carry on as we are, it's claimed, then as little as a century, a few small areas might start to get so hot in summer that no one can survive without air conditioning. Three centuries from now, up to half the land where people live today would regularly exceed this limit. All right, this apparently comes from a study by Stephen Sherwood, atmospheric scientist at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And uh, some of these conclusions are surprising people a bit. Article notes that even today, heat, heat waves can kill tens of thousands of people. In France, back in 2003, 14,000 people died from heat stroke in one hot summer. Article notes the victims of heat waves are usually the most vulnerable, the sick, the elderly, and the very young. But notes that as heat waves become more severe, the proportion of the population dying will rise. Even healthy adults who are acclimatized to heat will succumb if it stays too hot and too humid for too long. To function normally, we have to maintain a core body temperature of about 37 degrees centigrade, 98.6 Fahrenheit. If it rises above 42 degrees centigrade, we die. Notes the article, exactly why this is so is still not understood. The body diverts blood to the skin to try and cool off, which cuts the blood supply to the gut. One theory is that bacterial toxins from the damaged gut starts leaking into the bloodstream and eventually causing multiple organ failure. What is clear is that to prevent our core temperatures rising too high, our skin temperatures must not exceed 35 degrees centigrade for more than a few hours. In dry climates, sweating will cool the skin sufficiently even in temperatures of 45 degrees centigrade or more. 45 uh, centigrade is about 111 Fahrenheit, which, you know, we see on a regular basis in the Central Valley. I think the average temperature data shows that we, we do that three times a year. But in humid climates where the air is nearly saturated with moisture, sweating makes little difference. So since temperature isn't a, isn't a very good guide to what uh, people can survive in, a better indicator is the wet bulb temperature. That's the temperature that a mercury thermometer wrapped in a wet cloth records. It's a measure of both heat and humidity and reflects the temperature you could lower your skin to by sweating. It's noted that even fit and healthy people wouldn't survive sustained wet bulb temperatures above 35 degrees centigrade. That to heat stress limit applies even to people sitting naked in the shade next to a fan. So physiologists agree that in any temperature that sustains above that, we switch from a state to where you can lose heat from the skin to the environment, to which the body absorbs heat through the skin from the environment. This article presents some graphs showing that at the present time, annual maximum wet bulb temperatures almost never exceed 31 degrees Celsius. The reason is nature's thermostat. The hotter and more humid the air is, the more likely it is to rise and be replaced by cooler air. It also rises and causes a, a thunderstorm or rainstorm, which tends to cool things off. 
Meaning that uh, basically wherever you go around the world, wet bulb temperatures top out around 30 or 31 degrees. But if global average temperatures rise by, say, 7 degrees uh, Celsius, the maximum wet bulb temperatures in a few places will start to exceed that 35 degrees Celsius survival barrier. If that happens, we'll begin seeing migrations out of hot and humid countries where people can't survive the heat waves. Should the average global temperature rise by 12 degrees Celsius, half the land inhabited today would become too hot to live in. Obviously, this is going to cause conflict over land and resources. And some further bad news. Most of the discussion has been about what's going to happen in the 21st century. This article notes that warming isn't going to stop in 2100 unless our emissions have fallen to almost zero by then. This uh, global warming stuff is serious business, and uh, sadly, the Republican Party, which you mentioned in the, in the first segment, appears to be the only major political party in Western nations which is dedicated to the proposition that global warming is not a real issue. Everywhere else you go, even conservative parties seem to accept the reality of this and at least are willing to start talking about doing something about it. Here in America, the GOP isn't even willing to acknowledge that this is truly a danger. Anyway, scientists are continuing to model all of this and decide, you know, how it is uh, that air is going to circulate in increasingly uh, hot and moist conditions. But there's a great deal of worry that in tropical areas, the, the air masses are going to become more stabilized and less uh, prone to having uh, convection currents move through them to cool things off. Scary stuff. And what's really screwy about this is that we've got right-wing think tanks out there that while they're denying climate change is even happening, they're advocating geoengineering solutions to fix it. Opinion piece, also in New Scientist from July 17th, notes that a powerful group of scientists, venture capitalists, and conservative think tanks is coalescing around the idea of reproducing the cooling effect in the atmosphere of injecting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Article notes that despite the enormity of what's being proposed, nothing less than seizing control of the climate, the public has been almost entirely excluded from the planning. Article notes also that up till now, governments have been reluctant to talk about geoengineering because apart from its unknown side effects, it would weaken the resolve to reduce emissions. But notes the article, it may prove to be an irresistible fix. This form of geoengineering is extremely attractive because its costs are estimated to be trivial compared to those of cutting carbon. It also gets powerful lobbies off government's backs, giving the green light to burning more coal. It avoids the need to raise petrol taxes. It permits yet more unrestrained growth and is no threat to our consumer lifestyles. They're already starting to test this in Russia. Apparently, Yuri Israel, a scientist who's both a global warming skeptic and senior advisor to Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, has tested the effects of aerosol spraying from helicopters. They're now planning large-scale trials. Notes the article, Israel is the latest in a long line of scientists who have advocated planetary engineering. Two of the earliest and most aggressive were Edward Teller and Lowell Wood. Teller, who died in 2003, is often described as the father of the hydrogen bomb and was the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove, the mad scientist of Stanley Kubrick's 1964 film. Lowell Wood was one of the Pentagon's foremost weapons designers, which led his critics to dub him Dr. Evil. He led Ronald Reagan's ill-fated Star Wars project. Wood and Teller were promoting aerosol spraying back in 1998. The article notes that the, the right-wing think tanks that are denying climate change while promoting geoengineering, well, the irony of that just seems to escape them. 
Yeah, we've talked about Edward Teller on this program in the past. We should talk about Lowell Wood. He's definitely uh, Dr. Strangelove Jr. Article on the same topic in The Economist, November 6th issue, which notes how what we're talking about here is imitating volcanoes, injecting sulfur dioxide or sulfate high up into the stratosphere. Back in like 1991, I think it was, Mount Pinatubo blew up in, uh, in the Philippines, And uh, you may recall that for about two years after that, we had stunningly beautiful sunsets. The reason for those nice, orange, glowy sunsets was all of the particulate matter, which was injected so high above above the Earth, high up in the stratosphere. Not coincidentally, for for about two years, uh, while those particles were up there, the Earth did not see a rise in temperature. Apparently, all those particles of sulfur did uh, balance out our increases in CO2. So we know that in theory, uh, this can work. But noted the economist, volcanoes do this on, a wa- on an off-on basis. Geoengineers would need to leave a cloud up for a long time, which could get tricky. If you put sulfur dioxide into the air that already has a haze of, partic- of particles in it, the gas will glom onto those particles, making them bigger rather than forming new smar- small particles of its own. What's needed for cooling is lots of tiny particles rather than a few big ones. Apparently over at the University of Chicago, David Keith and colleagues came up with a new way of keeping particles up. Use sulfuric acid rather than sulfur dioxide. Now, I can't help but think of this juncture of the fact that the planet Venus has uh, clouds of sulfuric acid around it. And, uh, <laughs> and its surface temperature is something like 800 degrees. Now, of course, the sulfur, sulfuric acid is probably helping cool Venus, but uh, it's one place we don't want to imitate too closely. Anyway, the picture in The Economist shows, uh, shows these idea of some, some blimps, which is the current idea. You run blimps high up uh, in the atmosphere, you run tubes up to them, and you pump sulfate materials out into the stratosphere. There's some, alternatives ideas of, there's some alternative ideas of flying 80 planes into the stratosphere, putting out sulfuric acid. Anyway, uh, maybe not such a great idea. At re- that recent conference of the UN Convention on Biodiversity, there were some efforts to ban uh, geoengineering. Didn't actually accomplish that. The UN meeting in Nagoya, Japan, imposed a de facto moratorium on geoengineering projects and experiments that would affect biodiversity. What that means in practice is not too clear. What's really not clear in all of this is who's going to press the geoengineering button and on whose authority. You know, sometimes I get kind of depressed contemplating all this. There was an article in Rolling Stone in August showing nine ways that we can cool the planet. Rolling Stone envisioned three things that were sure bets, three that were on the horizon, and three that were on the outer fringes. Their outer fringes included artificial trees, urban maglev transport, and high-altitude wind generators, turbines that would be up in the stratosphere. A little more down-to-earth were high-speed rail, thin-film solar, and next-generation nuclear all of which we think are pretty good ideas. And what we described as sure bets were saving forests, using smart meters, and what's described as biochar, burning crop waste in low-oxygen stoves and burying the charcoal residue. Apparently this has the added benefit of enriching the soil, which helps more plants to grow. Seeking words of encouragement, I want to quote uh, David King, former chief scientific advisor to the UK government. He's currently director of the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment at Oxford, which hosts a world forum on enterprise and the environment uh, over the summer. I had the privilege of interviewing uh, David King when he spoke at Capital Public Radio a few years back. 
said David King. I believe progress has been made and that existing international agreements contain an important and hitherto overlooked mechanism that can do much to regulate carbon emissions. Such optimism might seem surprising. Many observers remain gloomy in the aftermath of the failure of last December's Copenhagen Climate Summit to come up with a successor to the Kyoto Protocol agreed to in 1997. That was the first time industrialized countries committed themselves to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Despite the failures at Copenhagen, David King said there's at least three positive messages from it. First, despite the lack of agreement, we know the issue of climate change now has the full attention of the world. The anger of poorer nations is a powerful and lucid expression of their full appreciation of the scale of the problem. Second, the meeting's disappointment have made plain the folly of attempting to craft a successor to, to Kyoto in a single collective leap. Third, as a result of the negotiations, we now have a global target to avoid a dangerous two degrees Celsius average temperature rise. Deforestation, which accounts for one-fifth of emissions, is now part of agreements. By the way, this year was on track, uh, last time we heard, to be the hottest year on record. I guess we'll have to see when the, when the data is tallied up at the end of the year whether we made it or not. Of course, I have to confess, David King did tell me off mic when I had a chance to speak with him that his counterpart in the U.S., the person who was advising uh, then-President George W. Bush about science, said, gee, he wished he could say the things publicly that David King was saying. He wouldn't for political reasons. And we should refer to something we mentioned a few weeks back on the program, article by Ronald Brownstein in National Journal, noting that only in America, as we talked about earlier, does an entire political party, the Republicans, dispute the strong, credible body of scientific evidence that climate change is real. Of 20 serious GOP Senate challengers this year, 19 declared there's no proof that man-made activities are warming the planet. This was described as a disturbing trend. But, you know, even even uh, some of the arch-Republicans are starting to get some of this, I have to say. I'm encouraged by that. Uh, Robert Bryce, writing in National Review Online, says, Ethanol is a scam. The federal government provides a $7 billion subsidy to corn growers every year to produce this second-rate fuel so it can be added to gasoline, even though ethanols fail to reduce America's oil imports and actually creates more air pollution than gas while reducing gas mileage. Ignoring all these inconvenient truths, the Obama administration, of course, I, I, I knew there had to be a hook here. They're criticizing the Obama administration recently announced that it approved an increase in the amount of ethanol that can be blended into gas from 10% up to 15 Why? The ethanol industry desperately needs a bailout because it has built far too many distilleries. Even environmentalists have come to see that ethanol... I love this. Even environmentalists <laughs> have come to see that ethanol is a net negative. Yeah, like they were the ones behind it. Anyway, with studies showing that it increases nitrogen oxides and other key pollutants by 7% versus gasoline. Ethanol is also corrosive to the fuel lines of older cars, boats, lawnmowers, and other non-road engines. So, why force motorists to put more of it in their gas tanks? Well, this ripoff has only one winner, and that's the farm lobby. I don't know, we could talk more about this, but I guess, I guess we've been quoting new scientists all, uh, all segment long. Let's close with one another item that's kind of interesting uh, from a historical perspective, November 13th issue of New Scientist notes that um, denying science is nothing new. We know that. But the article specifically refers to the fact that Einstein was up against uh, some implacable enemies. Article by Milena Wazek 
Notes that uh, when Einstein's general theory of relativity was published in 1915, it received an overwhelming public response, and not all of it was positive. Wrote author Melina Wazek, a few years ago I had the opportunity to access papers belonging to the physicist Ernst Gericke, one of the most outspoken critics of Einstein in Germany. As I delved into the materials that are neatly collected in banana boxes, a whole world of anti-relativity emerged from hundreds of, hundreds of pamphlets, thousands of newspaper clippings, and piles of letters from Einstein's opponents across Europe and the U.S. Note the author, I discovered that the group opposing relativity was much broader than many historians believe till now, and that their tactics had much in common with those used by creationists and climate change deniers today. Article notes that Gericke was an experimental physicist at the Empirical Technical Institute in Berlin. Like many experimentalists of that era, he was uncomfortable with the rise of a theory that demanded a reformulation of the fundamental concepts of space and time. And while at first objections to Einstein were raised in scholarly journals, after a key prediction of general relativity was confirmed during an eclipse in 1919, that is, that starlight would be bent by passing uh, near the sun, Einstein was transformed into a media star, and the debate acquired a much broader public impact. In 1919, the New York Times published an article headlined, Lights All Askew in the Heavens, Men of Science More or Less Agog Over Results of Eclipse Observations. Well, some folks in Germany weren't so knocked out. Apparently in August 1920, there was the launch of a series of public lectures against Einstein at the Berlin Philharmonic Hall. The event included a lecture by Gericke, who repeated the arguments he'd been raising unsuccessfully for years, as well as an impassioned speech by the anti-Semitic activist Paul Wayland, who had organized the series. The event made a clear impact, prompting Einstein to think seriously about leaving Germany. Einstein himself thought a lot of the opposition to him was politically based, and certainly some of it was, but as experiments were confirming that he appeared to be onto something, uh, uh, his opponents' marginalized positions forced them to turn to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And even in the Internet age, this apparently is not uh, completely dead. There's apparently a conservative website, Conservapedia, which uses wiki technology to allow people to document counterexamples to relativity. Conservapedia claims that relativity is, quote, heavily promoted by liberals, unquote, and lists 32 reasons why the theory is wrong. Curious to think about when we read of how ruthless uh, climate skeptics have been harassing scientists, drowning them in freedom of information requests, and subject, subjecting them to vicious personal attacks. Witness the brouhaha over the uh, University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit uh, uh, leaks, which were surely a tempest in a teapot. Anyway, we got plenty more on this topic, but not enough time. So let's take a break. Talk about some other stuff in our next segment. You're listening to... Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. Stop 